My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 6th, 2013. We will be doing our light edition today. It's like we got... Two or three, you know, like Category 4 or 5 heresy hurricanes blowing out there. And you just can't get to them all. <laughs> Can I punt? Is that possible? Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which? Help you to think biblically. Help you to think critically. Help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And once a week, we officially do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith, and that is that we cover a singular topic, and usually it's a good lecture. And uh, today I have for you what I would consider to be just a, the beginning of a fantastic uh, little lecture series that we're going to be hearing from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, talking about the theology of Adam and Christ. Uh, Adam, who is a type uh, and shadow of Christ, Christ is the fulfillment. Where Adam falls short, Christ fills in. And it, this is just super rich theology. And it's exactly what I think is needed right now in light of all the crazy stuff being said out there, especially regarding this new Bible uh, miniseries on the uh, History Channel. So enjoy this Lecture. This is the lecture number one of three that we'll be playing, entitled The Man of Heaven by Sinclair Ferguson. And just rest in it. It's great theology. You may have never heard these uh, parallels drawn before between Adam and Christ. And uh, if you haven't heard these parallels before, somebody lecture or teach on these uh, biblical categories, um, then you're in for a treat. This is the kind of stuff where you will probably be saying, I've never heard anything like this. 
And if you haven't, I apologize uh, for being so late and getting you something like this to hear on Fighting for the Faith, but <clears throat> these are fantastic lectures. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, and part one of a three-part series we'll be playing here at Fighting for the Faith over the next few weeks entitled The Man of Heaven. Here we go. Well, it's a privilege to be back here for this very significant assembly and to have this remit of speaking on these occasions on the title, Christ the Man of Heaven. And I want us to set our thinking in the context of biblical teaching by reading from the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. The author, of course, has given us this extraordinary description of the Lord Christ in the opening verses of chapter 1. And now he comes to the incarnational ministry of Jesus. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family or are of one. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. Man of heaven is, of course, the language that the apostle Paul uses in his great description of the work of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15.47. It is, as you know, one of only two passages in Paul's writings where very explicitly 
he relates the work of Jesus Christ to the significance of Adam and speaks about Christ in terms of him being, certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, the second man and the last Adam. The earlier passage, at least in terms of the order of the books of the New Testament, is in Romans 5:12 to 21. And there the Apostle Paul speaks about Adam as the pattern, the tupos, the type of the one who was to come. And within the context of that topology, he indicates that the topology operates in a kind of reverse gear. There is an analogy between Adam and Christ, Christ and Adam. But there is also built into that analogy a profound sense in which Jesus Christ as the second man and the last Adam operates in reverse. So that whereas in Adam sin entered the world and death through sin, in Jesus Christ grace reigns through righteousness and brings about eternal life. And so he thinks there within the terms of the Adam-Christ analogy and parallel, he thinks of Adam as the one through whom sin has entered the world and Jesus Christ as the one through whom obedience has re-entered the world for the salvation of men and women. And he compares and contrasts Adam and Jesus specifically in terms of Adam's sinfulness and Jesus' obedience. If anything, the way in which he operates with the same concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives us a yet larger view, not only of the work of Christ, but of the contrast between Jesus Christ and the first Adam. The canvas on which he paints there in 1 Corinthians 15 is so broad that one contemporary scholar has said this passage is the most all-embracing and full passage on what it means for Christ to fulfill his work. And the reason for that is, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, is because the point of comparison is not simply the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Christ. The point of comparison is Adam as created and the Lord Jesus as resurrected. In other words, here the canvas has been stretched by the Apostle Paul to before the point of Adam's fall and to after the point of Jesus' obedience unto death, even death on the cross. He now compares and contrasts Adam and Christ as the man who emerges from the dust, who is made of dust, and the man who, and he's thinking particularly of the resurrection, the man who in the resurrection is identified as the man of heaven, the man who has his origin in heaven and in the power of the Spirit of God in heaven. And so he is thinking now, not simply within the terms of the fallenness of the human race and the redemption of men in Jesus Christ. He is thinking of the overarching purposes and plan of God. And when, as you'll notice he does in 1 Corinthians 15, when he glosses Genesis 2-7, 
So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. He glosses it apparently with the intention of making it clear to us that this is not a purpose of God that has come into effect because of the fall, but this was the purpose of God in the original creation. And the way he sees that is this. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he appeals to Genesis 2-7. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, close quotes, and now he says, the last Adam became life-giving spirit. The point he's making, you see, is this. But in Paul's understanding of what it means for the Lord Jesus Christ to be the second man and the last Adam, the ultimate horizon of what Jesus Christ has come to do, is not simply to provide pardon and forgiveness, nor even to provide merely restoration, as it were, back into the Garden of Eden, but to consummate on our behalf the divine purpose and plan that was originally given for Adam. It was, Paul seems to think, it was written into the very fabric of Adam's being that created as he was a man of the dust, a man of the earth. That was never intended to be his final destiny. His final destiny was so to be transformed, consequent upon his obedience to God's word and will, that a transformation would take place both in Adam and through Adam in the entire created order, that we will now witness, not because Adam succeeded, but because Jesus Christ came as the second man, none between him, to fulfill this function. And the last Adam, none after him needed to fulfill this function, who will at the end of the day bring to this glorious consummation the purposes of God for man and creation that were invested in Adam's being from the very beginning. And so, for example, it is not really surprising then when we take our Bibles in our hand and hold the first two chapters of the Bible in our left hand and the last two chapters of the Bible in our right hand that we see that this is exactly what God plans to do. Not only to restore a fallen people to fellowship with himself, but to bring a fallen people to their eschatological destiny and glory which was originally written, as it were, into the plan and destiny that God had for man in Adam himself. And within that context, very interestingly, in those first two chapters and those last two chapters, there appears to be a kind of sacrament that appears in both. The sacrament of the tree of life, from which Adam in chapter 3 will be banished, which tree remains mysteriously there in the midst of the garden with an unexplained significance until we come to the last two chapters of the Bible and that tree of life reappears in the new Eden in the restored heavens and earth and it becomes crystal clear 
that this tree serves as the sacrament from which the people of God brought together from every tribe and nation and people and tongue will partake and enjoy both healing and eternal life, which is certainly indication enough from the Apostle John's point of view that that tree of life from which Adam was banned and banished, nay, excommunicated so severely that flaming swords guarded the way. But that tree of life was planted there in the divine purposes to be the sacrament by which an obedient Adam would be brought from the state of perfect nature to the state of incredible glory. And it's within that context, within these two bookends of the Holy Scriptures, that the Word of God, in a way that once we begin to grasp its principles, the Word of God explodes into our minds to help us to see how placing these two figures alongside one another in the mind of the Apostle Paul, and where the vocabulary is not used, the concept so almost omnipresent in the teaching of Scripture, that this fundamental idea of Paul's theology, that there is a first Adam and there is a second Adam, there is a first man and there is a last man, in a sense become the two pillars that uphold the whole of his thinking about what Jesus Christ and his grace has come to do. Let me simply illustrate one of the ways in which particularly Paul's mind works in that connection, where the vocabulary is not used, but the concept of Adam as the first man and Christ as the second man is all pervasive. One of the ways in which Paul can describe the history of humanity and salvation in Christ is in terms of the idea of glory. Man was created, you notice that Hebrews 2 quotes the same psalm, the eighth psalm. Man was created as the image and the expression of the glory of God. Look at the heavens and the earth and they are full of the glory of God. But where do you see the glory of God most perfectly expressed? You see it in that man walking in the garden. Because he supremely is the image of the blessed God. And God's glory is expressed in him. He is the physical expression of the communicable attributes of the divine being. But what does he do? Well, you remember how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 23. He exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like pathetic beasts. And then in Romans 3.23, he sums it up in a propositional rather than a descriptive statement. We have all sinned, he says. Now, what is the consequence of your sin? The ultimate consequence of your sin is that it means that you collapse short of the glory of God. That's a statement, however familiar to us, is absolutely unpackable ultimately to us unless we understand this is the way the Apostle Paul's mind works. This is not simply a statement, you know, when you sin, life becomes pretty pathetic. This is a statement that says, 
The deepest problem with sin is what it does to the glory of God, which men and women were created to reflect. And so the glory of the gospel, as he says in Romans 5, 2, is what? That being justified by faith, we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And these light afflictions that we experience are working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So here is one of several ways in which the Apostle Paul, without using the vocabulary, employs the concept of Adam the first man, Christ the second man, Adam the first, Christ the last as these great foundational pillars for helping us, for giving us an avenue into understanding what the Bible is saying to us when it presents Jesus Christ to us in the words of Pontius Pilate and says, Eki homo, behold the man. And it's this that I want to try and explore with you along the lines not of Pauline thought, but of the thought of the author of Hebrews, who says exactly the same thing without using the vocabulary in his great statement in Hebrews 2.10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author or pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word that Hebrews uses here, and of course again in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Christ as the author of our salvation, is the word archegos, and it really is almost untranslatable in one word in our English language, because it conveys the idea of somebody who is the first to do something, and by the very fact that he does it, he opens up the way for others to participate in what he has done. It is really the Hebrew's way of saying the same thing that Paul says in Romans 5:12 to 21 and in 1 Corinthians 15. As what Adam did had consequences for the whole human race because he was the archegos. He was the pioneer of life. And so when he failed and when in the jungle he fell and died, the whole of the human race falls and dies and remains in the jungle with Adam. But now Jesus Christ as the divine archegos enters into the jungle cleaves his way through the jungle by a life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father, overcomes all the obstacles that are in the jungle to him reaching the destination, dies in the process of finding the way home, and in finding the way home through his death and resurrection and ascension and now his heavenly session, he opens the kingdom of God to all who believe. And he becomes the author, as the Apostle Peter says in Acts, the author of our salvation. Perhaps I can put the whole thing in a graphic form like this. You are a father. And you receive a phone call one day to say that your son has been beaten up by a gang of youths. You visit the hospital and your son's face, the son whom everybody said when you were born looks so like you, his father. 
Your son's face is smashed to pulp. And they come along, these officials, and they say to you, Reverend Smith, they never know that that's wrong terminology, incidentally, to address a minister. They say, Reverend Smith, we are able to offer you from fund A or B £200,000 worth of compensation. Now, to most of us, that would be a king's ransom, wouldn't it? What do you say? You say, that's all very fine. But what I want is my son's face back. What I want is my son's face back. And the whole of the Christian gospel, the whole of the Bible's message, is the way in which how through history God has worked in such a way, bringing his purposes to consummation in Jesus Christ, that he might get his image back. In those who come to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. And the question, of course, is how does God do this? What becomes necessary for our Lord Jesus to accomplish in order that that glory from which we have fallen short might be restored not only to us in the gospel where we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, but actually restored in us? by the power of God the Spirit, by the ministry of Jesus Christ, who in his resurrection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, has become life-giving Spirit. Well, three things are essential. Number one, it is necessary for the second man to do what the first man failed to do. Number two, it is necessary for the second man to undo the consequences of what the first man did. Number three, it is necessary for the second man in himself and for his people to advance to the final destiny that the first man forfeited. And while I've struggled a little about how one deals with this concept in three addresses since it's so explosive. What I want to try to do, not least because of this magnificent 10th verse in Hebrews chapter 2, is to take this section that we've read together and ransack it in different ways on each of our three studies in order to explore how the author of Hebrews sees Jesus Christ as this new man, this second man, this last man, who does what Adam failed to do, who undoes the consequences of what Adam did, and who advances with us to that destiny of glory. It was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that Christ should thus serve. And I have six propositions. Not today, I have two today. I have two tomorrow morning, and I have two at the end of the conference. And I don't think I'll tell you what they are. But let me tell you what the first two are. The first is this, that as the man of heaven, our Lord Jesus, number one, fulfills Adam's role, and we'll spend most of our time on that, and number two, in order to do so, takes Adam's nature. 
First of all, he fulfills Adam's role. That role, of course, is outlined for us in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Man is the image of God and all that follows from it. But here, as Mark suggested yesterday, Calvin's principle is so helpful in our general theology. Here, Calvin is another principle that I think is particularly helpful here. He uses it especially in the context of Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24. That is, that we only ultimately see what has been lost in the fall when we discover what has been restored by the work of Jesus Christ. And so we find, as we think about the first Adam and the second man, we find that we learn something about Christ by placing Adam alongside him, and we learn much about Adam and what Adam was intended to be by placing him alongside Jesus Christ. And when we do that, there's a very interesting panorama opens up before us. It's this. You will be familiar with it, I'm sure. And that is that just as our Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah fulfills a threefold office of prophet and priest and king, he does so not simply in order to bring the forgiveness of sins. He does this in order to do and to become what Adam was called to be but failed in the fulfillment. And this, you'll notice, is outlined certainly in the case of Christ in Hebrews chapter 2. First of all, he is described as God's prophet. Hebrews 2.12. He says, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers, and in the presence of the congregation I will sing your praises. I will declare your name to my brothers. What is that? That is the prophetic ministry, the ongoing prophetic ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was that prophetic ministry that Christ fulfilled because Adam had been called to it but failed to express and fulfill it. Okay, we are going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. We will be right back and finish out the balance of this fantastic lecture on the man of heaven, drawing the parallels between Adam and Christ. Good stuff. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. 
Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous... So that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for fire starter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Oh, well, well I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend 
Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're not getting good, rich, Christocentric, biblical doctrine. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Not very much money, but it means a lot to us because it helps take out the peaks and the valleys, especially the valleys in our monthly giving, so that we can properly budget and make our expenses every month as we continue to grow. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Here's the balance of today's lecture by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson on the man of heaven. Here we go. And you see this fairly clearly in the opening chapters of the Bible. As the image of God, Adam was called in the microcosm to, as it were, have a miniature share in God-like qualities and activities. And so as God had spoken his powerful word in Genesis 1, and God said, and it was. In Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that God makes man in his image in such a way that man gets a little taste of what it means to exercise 
an authoritative, that is, prophetic word, a word that comes with such power that what that word says actually comes to pass. You see that in the way in which Adam becomes the prophet whose word directs creation. A marvelous illustration of this in Genesis 2 and 19 and 20, where you remember there is the first not good in the Garden of Eden, where Adam, we are told in verse 18, was alone. And you notice how the chronology of events is the reverse of the description of those events here. Verse 19 actually precedes verse 18 chronologically. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man, what for? To see what he would name them. And here was this marvelous picture of Adam, the zoologist, having all these animals passing before him. What a moment that must have been. Here comes a little monkey, and now an ape, and then a giraffe. And here is a cow, and there a dog, and here a little cat, and there's a bunny rabbit. And as they pass by, this protological man says, in whatever language he spoke, giraffe, giraffe. And who would ever doubt that that was the right name to call these amazing creatures? Giraffe. And do you notice, notice the language that's used? Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. It's analogous to Genesis 1. And God said, and it was. As in this miniature world, the father says to his son, now get a little taste of it. Here's the father in the workshop, the analogy Jesus uses about himself and the father. And the father is making a chair. There's no way the son can make a chair. But the father gives him a little block of wood and he says, saw it in two. And the son has a little taste that thrills him of what it must be like for the father to be able to manufacture and to craft all these magnificent things. He can't create the giraffe. But the father takes him by the hand and says to him in the, in the Garden of Eden, now it's your turn. Let's see your creativity. Speak the word and it will be. And it's not only in that realm, it also takes place in the moral realm. Because the word that God speaks to Adam in connection with the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is apparently a word that's spoken to Adam prior to the creation of Eve. And so Adam's great role within the context of the whole of humanity, but immediately within the context of his own home and family life, where the next two chapters will tell us he so signally failed, is to speak the prophetic word of God that calls for moral decision and moral obedience, first to Eve, then to his sons, and then to the whole of creation. And he is called in that miniature sense to be the divine prophet. And in both of these aspects, he loses, through his sin, prophetic ability. The serpent begins to tell him and his wife what to do. And he no longer speaks the authoritative word to the animal creation. The world begins to rise and rebel against him. And then in this fascinating account 
so full of mystery in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent, who from a New Testament point of view is certainly the expression of satanic opposition to the best of God's work. The serpent addresses the woman. He knew a thing or two. He knew a thing or two. And we have this little note, do you notice? In verse 6, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, food pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate. And then, without missing a beat, notice what the next statement says. She also gave some to her husband. What does that imply? It implies that Adam was standing beside her, and he was absolutely silent. No word from him saying, the word of the living God, which he has given to me as the prophet of God for the whole of creation, says no. And he thereby loses his prophetic ministry. And it's interesting to see how in the Old Testament scriptures we begin to get hints that in his divine grace, God is going to remedy both of these prophetic disorders. He is going to remedy the way in which man who was supposed to exercise prophetic authority over the dust becomes part of the dust and it exercises authority over him. But this little promise that the world will once again be the garden that Adam was called to create and to tend. And there is the promise of the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And then there is the great promise in the pages of Scripture of how God in His grace will once again to the man of His appointing subdue the animal creation. And you get that little glimpse in the book of Daniel of the eschatological possibilities of a man being down in a lion's den and the lions being subordinate to the man who is the true prophet of God. And you see it in Mark's account of Jesus in his temptations, surrounded, we are told, by wild beasts. What's that a picture of? Well, it's a picture of the second man and the last Adam beginning to exercise again his prophetic voice with power. And in Mark's gospel, it flows on from there. The last Adam then exercises his prophetic authority by his word of forgiveness to the paralytic, by his word of power through which he exercises the demons and demonstrates his authority over the ancient serpent, his word of power over the storm where nature is subordinated to the prophet of God, his word of moral power as he calls his disciples to demonstrate that this one is the true prophet of God who has authority over the hearts of men and women. And eventually in the consummation, of course, when the bride of Christ is presented to Christ himself, you remember how Paul puts it? What is the great hallmark of that bride? The hallmark of that bride in Ephesians 5 is that this bride will listen to the prophetic voice of her husband, the new man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ appears against the background of Adam as the one who is called to fulfill the role of prophet, which Adam had failed to fulfill. The same is true of the ministry of the priest. And here we find it stated of Christ again, obviously, in Hebrews 2.17. He was made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become 
a faithful and a merciful high priest in the service of God. That priestly ministry is described later on, chapter 5, verse 1, in similar terms in chapter 8, verse 1, in terms of the fallen condition. There are certain requisites for a priest whose task is to bring gifts to God, offering worship, and to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. But in an unfallen world, an unfallen condition, there was also a priestly ministry. It was not a ministry in which sacrifices were brought for sins, but in which gifts were brought expressing the thanksgiving and the praise of creation. When you read the story of the Garden of Eden and put it into the context of the pattern of biblical theology that emerges in the tabernacle, And then in the land of promise that is such an echo of the Garden of Eden. And then in the temple. And then you remember how Adam was excommunicated from that holy space. It becomes fairly clear, I think, that if I can put it this way. The Garden of Eden was the original divine cathedral. Genesis 3.8, God would come and he would meet in this particular space at particular times with his people as he walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And the whole ambience of the context in which Adam lives in the Garden of Eden is the ambience of a world that is all temple. Just as later on, the new Garden of Eden will be all temple. In Revelation chapter 21. And from that garden, of course, Adam will eventually become the kind of prototypical Adziah by being excommunicated from the place where he may meet with God and with clean hands mount the hill of the Lord and enter into his holy presence. He was there as the rational conduit to express in its highest form the gift of all creation's worship. The expression that's used in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 about Jesus, that he is the Liturgos in the heavenly temple, is an expression that could have been used of Adam. He was the praise leader in the earthly temple. All creation looked to him, its prophet, also to be the mouthpiece of its praise and worship as he brought as a great celebrant the admiration and adoration of all creation. And interestingly, you see that in Paul's thinking when he speaks about Adam in reverse. What does Adam in reverse fail to bring to God? Worship. You notice that? Romans 1.21 Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then in verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. 
Well, that marvelous little expression C.S. Lewis uses in his preface to Paradise Lost when he describes Milton's description of Eve taking the fruit of the tree and Adam taking the fruit of the tree, and as they leave, uh, I think the words of Milton are, uh, she low obeisance made. And Lewis says, she who refused to bow to Almighty God now worships a vegetable. They were made to be the praise leaders of the whole of creation and God's priests. And now in order that they may be restored, sacrifice is necessary. And this our Lord Jesus Christ embraces. Romans chapter 1, 18 following is a description, the ultimate description of liturgical chaos. And what Jesus Christ is called to do in himself as an embodiment of God's calling is to express liturgical order and liturgical glory. And this we are told he marvelously does. Then thirdly, Adam is called to be king, and perhaps this is the aspect of that threefold office with which most of us are most familiar. Again, Hebrews 2.9. Notice the way the eighth psalm is cited. And then in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we don't see everything subject to him, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And you see what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's taking up the eighth psalm, which itself takes up Genesis 1 to 3. And he's saying this eighth psalm is really fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus in these threefold offices as prophet and priest and now as king. He is now, although we don't see the fulfillment of his reign, he is already crowned. He is already king. There is already honor and glory heaped on his head. But you see what that implies for the author of Hebrews about Adam. As he reflects on the eighth psalm, he sees that this was what Adam was called to be. This is why Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God made him as his image, he made him to exercise authority over the whole creation. It was another aspect of his sharing in the microcosm of the macrocosmic power of the king of the universe. He was to reign and he was to exercise divine authority over all things. That may well be why his territory is very carefully demarked. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, but the Garden of Eden is Adam's. God is the great king. Adam is his vicegerent. There is a bond between the great king and the vicegerent in which the great king says, Adam, I love you so much. I want you to share in what it means to exercise holy authority over this small part of the created order. And so he's told to do what God had done in Genesis 1. What had God done in Genesis 1 out of the darkness? God had created form and order and fullness. And now God says to Adam, that's what you have to do. I want to see fullness. You have to go forth and multiply. I want to see form. You are to tend this garden. I want to see fullness. 
I want to see you turn the whole world into a garden. There are all kinds of interesting questions in parenthesis, I want to say, about the fact that it's clear in Genesis 1 to 3 that the whole world was not yet a garden. There was a distinction, a demarcation of Eden from the rest of the earth. Eden was a garden. We don't know what the rest of the earth was. But the implication is, and it becomes clearer, obviously, in the light of the work of Christ, that Adam was intended to turn the whole earth into a garden. And so, when he fails and God's judgment falls, the judgment falls upon the garden and the world. Thorns and thistles, the reign of the curse. And then in redemptive history, God gives little hints. The land of Canaan again. That there will be authority over the land. The reign of Solomon, the magnificent description of the reign of the king in the 72nd Psalm. The sense of the borders of God's garden extending, as it were, from shore to shore. And this amazing vision of the Old Testament that one day the borders of God's garden will extend all round the earth. And the calling which Adam failed to fulfill will be fulfilled in the Messiah. Well, says the author of Hebrews in Jesus Christ, we see that the world to come about which we are speaking. Isn't that fascinating in verse 5? What does he mean by that? The world to come about which we are speaking. And then he takes up the 8th Psalm. And he says, we don't see this yet. But we lift up our eyes and we see Jesus has already been crowned. And the restoration work of the King has begun. I've puzzled a long time over the way in which in John's Gospel, how do you exercise control so that you can be sure that John has a double meaning? Do you know the place where I've most wrestled with that question? It's when Mary meets Jesus in the garden on the morning of the resurrection. What did she mistake him for? The gardener. The gardener. And she wasn't altogether wrong. Because from the moment of his resurrection, he had this great plan to turn the whole earth into the garden that's described in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So that he would fulfill what Adam had failed to do. And that great task that's described in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, ultimately has that in view. That the whole earth will be turned into a garden for men and women like ourselves who are prophets and priests and kings will speak His Word faithfully, bring Him worship sinlessly, and exercise His rule perfectly. And the good news, it's already begun for those who are in Christ. In Him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Well, I said we would spend most of the time on that point, and we've spent almost all of the time on that point. And I promised Willie Philip that I would stop in mid-sentence if need be, but let me say something 
about that which then becomes a prerequisite for the fulfillment of these threefold offices of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that he should come and assume Adam's nature. And you see the point that's, that's driven into the whole of the Bible. It is that if restoration is going to take place, then it needs to take place from within. Otherwise, it's not a genuine restoration of God's original purposes. And so you see how he speaks about the second man assuming the nature of the first man. Hebrews 2.9, uh, citing the eighth psalm, he is made lower than the angels. Verse 14, he shares our humanity. Verse 17, he's made like us in every way. Verse 16, it's not the seed of angels, but the seed of Abraham. And we might add the seed of Abraham when it was at its darkest and lowest. In these two, one, a youngster, perhaps of 15 or 16 years old, that was where Abraham's seed was, in an outhouse in Bethlehem. And so he took hold of our human nature in order that he might establish the new out of the old and the second out of the first. And Hebrews, the author, whoever the author was, is just bursting with the wonder of this. In terms of the identity of this one in the description in Hebrews 1, 3, he is the Son who is the radiance of God's glory. That's interesting, isn't it? The radiance of God's glory in himself, in his own nature, he's the radiance of God's glory. And he comes, humbles himself, empties himself, becomes lower than the angels. No wonder the angels peer over the balcony of heaven to try and puzzle out what is going on here. As notice, just as Adam entered into the very fabric of the world through his fall. Dust you are and dust you'll be again. The Lord Jesus, the man of heaven, enters into the very fabric of the fallen world, into the womb as a helpless embryo in the womb of a helpless Hebrew maiden. He comes down to the lowest point, to the weakest point, to the poorest point, to the most defenseless point in all creation in order to begin again. And the wonder of this, of course, lies in the distance traveled between that glory and this humility as he enters into the fabric of a fallen world and then takes upon himself the nature of human experience. Notice the vocabulary he uses. Suffering, verses 9 and 10 and 18. Death, twice in verse 9, once in verse 14. Being tempted, verse 18 being capable, verse 10, of progress to maturity. I hope you believe that about Jesus. That so real was his humanity that from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, he was constantly maturing. As his potential as a human being developed with his strength, with his human understanding, so, as we'll see, I think, tomorrow, he made progress from perfection to yet greater perfection in our humanity. And yet all the while, as Hebrews 7 underlines, taking our humanity, 
Not that humanity in the condition it enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, but that humanity in the condition it was in. Now, subject to the ails of humanity, in a fallen world, with disobedient mother and stepfather, and yet all the while without sin, coming in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin. And then the author rejoices in the fact this is too much for us to take in, that this is permanent. It is not an interim measure to be divested at the point of resurrection, ascension, glorification, or return. He forever wears that humanity he assumed in the womb of the Virgin Mary because it is his purpose to bring many sons to glory through the marvel of his incarnation, death, and resurrection. We get a unique glimpse of that, of course, in the gospel narratives, particularly as they describe the emotional life of our Lord and in the thinking of the author of Hebrews as he describes the event that I assume is his description of the experience of the Garden of Gethsemane. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. His soul was, the word that's used in the gospel, this perilupos, surrounded with grief because he enters into the depth of our humanity, takes Adam's nature in order to fulfill Adam's role. And thus, as Hebrews 2.10 says, it is fitting that he should be the author of our salvation through suffering. Much more of this, by God's grace, we will see. Some of the applications of this should be obvious. But do you notice the application that the author of Hebrews makes of this? It's not so much the application of what I should do, but the application of where I should look. Therefore, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, that's the greatest need of your ministry and mine. That's the greatest need of the people you serve as far as your ministry and mine is concerned. That your eyes are fixed on Jesus and that your gaze is full of him. Second man, last Adam. Father, we're all too disabled to grasp the magnitude of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. But we are lost in wonder and love and praise that you should prize us so highly as to give your own dear Son for us and through him to give us your Spirit to change us into his likeness. Thank you that he now reigns And together we praise you.
that one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. We pray this in his name. Amen. So what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.